Welcome to American Education FM, everybody. I'm Dr. Sean Brooks. Hello. Hi there. Okay. Here's the deal. I want to spend actually the majority of this episode going through this document that I received from the two individuals in Oxford, Michigan, who are, of course, associated with Truth for Oxford, Kristen and Bobby. And they are going to be on the Dangerous Info podcast on Monday. And I'll be joining them also, but I'll be taking a back seat and and listening to them, again, bring up a lot of the details of the Crumbly shooting and, and the cover-up that is ever-present and ongoing. Um, but I tell you what, th- there's this document, of course, that the school district has released where they conducted, of course, their own investigation and include testimony from individuals where they piece this entire story together. It's a 562-page PDF. I'm slugging my way through it. And it really is damning, in my humble opinion. Having only read, I would say, 20 pages of this already, it's very damning regarding the school district itself, all of the bullshit policies that they have in place, along with, again, the employees within the building. These are not smart people. These are individuals who cut corners, don't follow their own policies because the policies are far too complex, really, for anybody to follow, which again is why in a court of law, if they're ever questioned, which they already have been in many cases, but they'll say, did you follow the policy? They'll say yes. And then if you ask them what the policy is, well, they don't know because the policy is too long and it's too complex. They have to stand here, then they have to call these people, then they have to go over here, then they have to send this message, then they have to do this. I'm going to get to it in a little bit, but one of the threads that runs through this is it's beyond evident that the employees never once before the shooting met with Ethan Crumbly's parents in a general parent-teacher conference. I mean, I'm not seeing it anywhere in here. I understand that the counselor met with the dad that day, if memory serves, the day of the actual shooting, but or the day before, which, whichever it was. But either way, they knew of Ethan way back in the spring. They were aware that he was sleeping in class, that he wasn't doing what he should have been doing, that he was failing. That's an immediate parent conference. Immediate. And I'm not seeing it anywhere in here that that even took place. Again, even a school teacher should suggest that. They shouldn't be passing the buck onto a counselor or even a dean or anybody and saying, well, you know, you handle it, which essentially is what the school teacher did in this particular situation. But this is an immediate parent conference dating back again in May when the school teacher, when one of these school teachers of Ethan Crumbly had a direct problem with him regarding again him sleeping in class and failing the class. I, I can't say it enough. That's an immediate parent conference. So that's just one teeny example. I'm going to read from this document though because I want people to understand that I'm looking at this as a former employee. That as a former school employee, I can break this document down, <clears throat> excuse me, I think certainly from that, from that angle and that perspective. 
Whatever you do, though, I highly recommend that if you listen to this show that you tune into the Dangerous Info podcast and listen to Bobby and Kristen and their breakdown of this entire thing. Because this is far, it's, it's way deeper than even this document leads on to. Which leads me to this real quick. I wrote a substack the other day with their permission. I said, do you mind if I, if I write a quick substack to sort of wet people's whistle regarding this subject and, uh, and, and put it out there, specifically regarding the school district hiring Perkins Coey as their law firm? And then, of course, diving into the fraud that is restorative practices. And I'll get into a little bit of that here in this episode also, but my recommendation again is you bounce over to the AmericanClassroom.substack.com and check that article out. Move it around if you can. And it's titled The Hiring of Perkins Coey and the Oxford, Michigan Community School District and the Failure of Restorative Practices, the Ethan Crumbly OCSD cover-up, the absence of accountability, and more revelations to come. So again, on January 22nd on Monday, at 7 o'clock in the evening, uh, Jesse James is going to have Truth for Oxford on as well, and I'll be there too. Of course, Outcast is always there, and I highly recommend, again, checking out that episode when we're on because, again, the information that they're going to bring to bear here, I don't think much of the public fully, fully grasps or understands. I'll also say this, and this matters, is that what is going on there? And what is going on within this particular document and the law firms getting involved and everybody, again, sort of covering their own bases. This should prove to people that this shooting happened and all the other ones we've heard in the news have not. And, the, and this is so important. I, I, can't, I can't emphasize this enough. This is proof that those past shootings, quote unquote, didn't happen. That's a big flipping deal because in a real shooting, there's this kind of documentation. There's this kind of evidence. There's this kind of um there's this kind of testimony. There's this kind of under oath, you know, where were you? What were you supposed to be doing XYZ? That hasn't happened in Iowa, Nashville, Uvalde, Sandy Hook, pick one. It hasn't happened. Still not happening. But this is going on and, and this is happening, which should prove to people again that, that this is what happens when a real school shooting takes place. You get lawyers involved, I fully understand, not Perkins Coey. I mean, my God, they can't get more corrupt. They're, they're directly attached to Hillary Clinton. I mean, Hillary Clinton hired them. And as I, I you know, I, I break that down again in the Substack article, but you know they're they're advocating for child traffickers and murderers and gangsters and I mean you name it it's just it's beyond bizarre but uh, yeah so either way I'm going to get into that document here in this episode I want to mention a couple of things real quick though of course the Iowa caucus just happened that was hilarious Trump blew the doors off of everybody uh, Vivek's now gone and he had a couple of bad days where people were. Completely outing him and his uh, his his robbing of the American people regarding his fake uh, his fake what was it fake pharmaceutical company where he had his mom sort of rewrite particular studies to make it look like this drug that he was selling was going to help people and then it made its way to trial and then it failed the trial and then the stock plummeted but he had already made all of his money along with all the other donors and friends of his and family members. I mean, he's a crook. Viv Vivek Ramaswamy is a crook. 
of the highest order. So, I mean, he can, he can say we need to speak truth to power and we need to, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I, I mean, look, the guy's, he, he's a robber. I, I, there's no other way to say it. He's just a robber. So he's gone. Uh, and the, the, the rest of them will go as well. And it's only a matter of time. But I love the, I love the constant reing that's taking place with just the whining and the screaming that everybody in the mainstream media is doing. I absolutely love it. Uh, it's like 2016 all over again. All the MSNBC dumbasses are all at the table, the Rachel Maddows and the Jen Sackies and who's that race baiter, Joy Reid. You know, they're, they're all screaming and just showing everybody who they are. I love it. The, the audio clips and the video clips, ladies and gentlemen, that, that are going to come out this entire year regarding all of this, I can't wait. <laughs> I just, I absolutely love it. It is arguably the best television that exists. And I'm, I'm going to continue to take those clips and throw them into the war videos. So again, if you're interested in, in taking a look at them, please watch the war videos. I put a bunch of them in the most recent one. And uh, yeah, so bounce over there and, and certainly check that out. But uh, uh, the election season, it's just glorious. It truly is. Someone put this post out now. I, I want to read this very quickly here before I get into the, uh, let's see, before I get into the Ethan Crumbly stuff. Somebody put this post on, on Godlike Productions, which is a chat board. Uh, and if you're interested in, again, getting over there and seeing what the people have to say about a number of issues, GLP is, uh, is, is an interesting chat board. A lot, lot, of, lot of dialogue over there. Either way, here's what one person said. They said, quote, there will be no U.S. election in November or second coming for Trump. If you think there will be a U.S. election, you are naive. I believe global elite U.S. deep state will never relinquish power. They know Trump will win the next U.S. election by a landslide. They will fear reprisals for their nasty campaign of hate towards him and his family. There are too many heads on that line now. It says not only this are they so far ahead with their plans for enslaving humanity. They will resort to drastic measures to keep everything on track. They then asked, how will they stop U.S. election? They said, personally, I think Trump being suicided will only be considered as the last resort. The risk of starting a civil war in the United States is far too great. I think war with Russia is the most likely option. Biden becoming a war president, deep state keeping full power and control of the lump of demented meat in the White House. Says disease X is another possibility. Full lockdown again. Postal voting. It worked once before. Ninety-nine percent of the sheep are so dumbed down they will accept the election result. Like I said, I'm convinced there will be no U.S. election. U.S. is an occupied nation. Trump is not their man, or if he was, he isn't now. Unquote. Again, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. I really don't. I I agree with. Certainly, angles of that. I understand fully that the deep state has endless plans. These individuals, I mean, they're psychopaths. And I'll tell you something, it kind of slides into this very quickly, but I started watching the planned out scenario, and there are four parts of this of the Disease X conference that they had, which they refer to as Clade X. And uh, it's, it's beyond strange. I mean, these people are psychopaths. They actually get in this room. They sit around this table. 
They applaud one another walking in. So, I mean, there's there's a group of individuals sitting in an audience actually watching them have this pretend conversation about a thing that doesn't exist for a scenario and a script that doesn't exist, and then they're debating about this as if it's actually real. And I watched a good deal of it. I didn't watch all four-plus hours of it, but I watched, I would say, at least 30 to 40 minutes. These people are nuts. They're absolutely nuts. In fact, Tom Daschle is one of the individuals who is actually one of the players in this scenario. And he's pretending to, again, be one of these politicians who's on the cabinet of the president at the time. And uh, he's a, I mean, he's a former, I think, South Dakota or North Dakota Democrat. Um, if memory serves, he used to be the majority leader in the House. If he wasn't a senator, I'm, I'm not entirely sure I forget. But either way, he's a piece of junk. And he's in this scenario, and he's, again, they're having this fake discussion about a thing that isn't real. In their scenario, they actually blame a terrorist group, so they say, for, for releasing this bioweapon that's making people ill and causing people to die. And then, again, their entire conversation basically is, what do we do with the people? What measures do we take to make sure that there isn't disinformation and misinformation. And they're really hammering that one home. I mean, even at uh, in Davos there with the old World Economic Forum recently, you got Klaus Schwab saying the same thing. They're talking about how are we going to get a hold of social media and what, what can we do to make sure that the, the misinformation and disinformation stops coming out. I mean, these terms that they make up, they're just proving to everybody again that they are the bad guys. What I can't for the life of me figure out is why there isn't a single military, not one, that's actually arresting these people, including the people, again, who, who engage in these playtime scenarios like Clade X or Disease X. I mean, what are they doing? Why are they not being arrested? They're playing around with a thing that's rather serious, but it's completely contrived. It's totally made up. I don't get it. I just don't understand. I mean, yeah, they're all evil, and I understand, you know, we can't trust the military probably and a thousand other things, certainly not law enforcement, but why is it that they get to just sit around and pretend on how they're going to take over humanity? It's beyond bizarre. But in this scenario, what they also do is they also break down how quickly they're going to create more vaccinations and how a 12-month timeline is too long of a timeline, that we have to have vaccinations before something like this ever occurs, so that if something like this occurs, we can get more vaccinations in more people's arms quicker. And then, of course, they spend a great deal of time talking about just the general narrative and the feel of what the entire public thinks about all of this. And they spend a good deal of time on that. Again, they're like, well, we have to make sure and get the messages out there correctly. And we have to make sure that everybody's on the same page and that the DOD is working with the CDC. I mean, they have government agencies working with these private organizations in this scenario the same way that they did the COVID lie. They're ramping this up again. I mean, this is legit. This is real. They can, they can play pretend all they want, but why would they play pretend? for something like this if they weren't actually going to roll it out one more time. And it may not be 
2024 when they do this. They might let Donald Trump win, and then they'll drop this on him again. And again, we remember all of the different players and all of the different people and the different organizations that all came out of the woodwork. Again, the the Burkses, the the Fauci's, you name it, the Gottliebs, and you know whatever else. All these people came out of the woodwork, and we saw all of these individuals. If Trump were to win again, which in a real election he would win, but let's for just a second imagine that he wins, and then they drop one of these things on the public either before or right after an inauguration. Again, in an effort to either distract him from arresting people or whatever it may be. There's no way that whatever scenario plays out on his end regarding the things that he did the last time, there's no way that that can happen again. Absolutely no way. There needs to be basically one one press conference that takes place where he walks up there and he goes, this whole thing is bullshit. And then he curses at the media for lying and he curses out all the other organizations for pushing this false narrative. And then he takes the offensive, or he goes on the offense, I should say, toward them and goes after those organizations, again, the UN, the WEF, the World Health Organization, the CDC, the NIH, pick one, Health and Human Services. That would be, I mean, you talk about pulling a trump card, so to speak, and then flipping a table at the same time. That would be something that they wouldn't expect. And the media wouldn't expect that either. I don't think that they would expect that they would drop something like that on him. And then he and, again, everybody around him and the military and you name it, would immediately go after all of those organizations as being the liars that they are. And then again, maybe even dropping documents on the public so that we can see these emails of them communicating back and forth that they contrive this entire thing. Of course, we already know that they have because they've already played out this entire Clade X scenario or Disease X scenario. So, I don't know. It, it, it really is interesting. It's fun to think about. It's interesting to think about because, again, whatever they, whatever they do, whatever they roll out, we know it's not going to be real. If they crank up the 5G and people start dropping because they're being cooked from the inside out, well, people are going to see that. that. That'll be undeniable. Unfortunately, I don't think the vast majority of the public has any clue about the 5G towers and what they're capable of. I don't think they have any idea. And it's worth mentioning again, one more time, that I'm shocked it's not getting more, more attention. I'm shocked that more people aren't talking about it. Again, politicians aren't bringing this up. Uh, Dr. McCullough didn't bring it up the other day to Marjorie Taylor Greene that if you're jabbed and you're sick, you don't have long COVID, you have AIDS. That's a big deal. Seems like a rather big deal. Uh, that, that, that's a rather large headline, I think. But that's just being swept under the rug. Ho-hum, Deborah Burks just said you have AIDS. That we need to treat everything like, you know, treat all this COVID stuff like HIV. That it'll sit dormant on your DNA before it decides to snap your DNA after being sick uh, so frequently over the course of years that eventually your illnesses will increase. And, uh, you know, but don't worry, because people live with HIV for a very long time and live totally normal and healthy lives. Again, I, I can't believe that more people aren't bringing that up because it's, it's massive. That's massive. 
It's an open admission from the enemy's side that if you took the shots, you have permanently damaged DNA, which has now given you AIDS, which is, of course, a plethora of syndromes as a result of not having an immune system. Blows me away. So I don't know. Time's going to tell on all this, but God, 2024, I'm telling you, it's messed up. It's just messed up. There was also this. I, I know I'm into the jab stuff, but I'm trying to get this kind of out of the way here before I dive into the, the Ethan Crumbly stuff here, so bear with me. Uh, Vietnam court sends ex-health minister to jail for 18 years over COVID test kits scam. It says the anti-graft campaign in Vietnam has struck down another politician accused of corruption. Former health minister Nguyen Than Long, if that's his real name, was sentenced to 18 years in prison after a local court in Hanoi got hold of evidence pointing toward a 2.25 million COVID test kit scam. Now, I could read the entire article. There's not a whole lot to read, really. It's just a couple of paragraphs. But uh, the fact is this. Every single administrator at the K-12 school and university level dished out these tests. Now, they may not be specifically referencing the Binax Now test, those fake tests that endless people were taking and saying, look, I have COVID, it says so. But the entire test thing, the whole test COVID stuff is all fake. It's all fraudulent. All of it was a giant money laundering scheme. And think again about how many corporations, school districts, hospitals, governments, militaries, law enforcement, Local, state, and federal politicians all went along with those tests, those fake tests. They all did. It's beyond incredible. Again, the depth of lying and deception in all of this is overwhelming. But this guy's going to prison. I mean, they've decided to pluck him and pick him. And uh, yeah, now just do it in the United States. And if they did it in the United States, honest to Christ, everybody would be going to jail. Everybody. You were dishing out a test that doesn't test for anything. And you were, you were making people take it. And then relying on that information like it was accurate, which it wasn't because it was fake. It's as accurate as pissing on a rock and going, well, the rock said I tested positive for COVID. It's ridiculous. There's also this, and you will recall the ICANN Lawyer Association that's head up by Aaron Siri. But this was from Just the News, and it is titled, Judge Orders CDC to Quickly Turn Over Millions of COVID Vaccine Injury Reports by Early Patients. It says, agency grossly overstated how burdensome redaction process would be, ignoring automated tools common in legal discovery, Trump appointee says. Former NIH director's recent apology shows continuing relevance of data. It says, the last time a federal judge ordered the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to turn over data from its COVID-19 vaccine Active Surveillance Program, which enrolled 8.5 million participants from December 2020 to April of 2021, the public learned the earliest recipients reported a surprisingly high rate of listed moderate to severe adverse events following the jabs, about one in three. It says the vSafe mobile app surveys 
didn't provide checkboxes for chest pain or other cardiac symptoms, requiring users to enter them as free text entries, quote-unquote, up to 250 characters. Despite the CDC including myocarditis and pericarditis as adverse events of special interest, quote-unquote, in the initial vSafe protocol, it says now those 7.8 million entries are coming to the public over the next year under a different Freedom of, Freedom of Information Act lawsuit than the informed consent action lawsuit, I'm sorry, network litigation that prompted the release of the checkbox data more than a year ago. It says, let's see, U.S. District Judge Matthew Kazmark, Kazmark, something like that, scolded the agency throughout his memorandum and order, granting the motion for summary judgment by Freedom Coalition of Doctors for Choice, saying the CDC made weak excuses for withholding the free text entries. So in essence, what they were doing with that vSafe app is they were limiting what people could put in as their adverse reaction. And they were, of course, doing that because they didn't want to hear that people were dying. And they didn't want to hear the plethora of adverse reactions. Because, yeah, I mean, it's multiple pages. It's 300-some-odd pages of adverse reactions. That's a little, that's a little tough to cram into 200-some-odd uh, characters when you're trying to type into a text box. So, again... You know, just more evidence. It's it just continues to come out that these are biological weapons and that they've been killing people since day one. There's also this here. This is from AmericaOutloud.news. Dr. Jim Thorpe and his wife wrote this. It is titled "U.S. Government Coerced Leaders of Faith to Push COVID-19 Vaccines on Americans." It says the following here that the HHS Health and Human Services was tapping faith leaders in the spring of 2021 to push the uptake of COVID-19 vaccines was not a surprise. They said, we uncovered this in our previous article that we broke on the COVID-19 community core at the end of 2022. But what did surprise us as we dug deeper for this article was the extent to which faith leaders were pursued to push the COVID-19 vaccines and the inappropriate, if not unconstitutional, manner in which government officials persuaded these faith leaders to push the shots. It says, with 86 founding members, the faith leaders' quote-unquote category of the COVID-19 Community Corps was the most numerous. It says these founding members included both individual faith leaders and faith organizations from a variety of religions, including the American Baptist Church, Catholic Charities USA, the Episcopal Church, the National Association of Evangelicals, the Greek or Orthodox Archdiocese of America, the New York Jewish Agenda, just to name a few. Not surprisingly, many faith organizations received federal money during the pandemic, not a pandemic. For example, an entity called American Baptist Church in USA reportedly received $1.5 million in COVID-19 relief bailout money in the form of two forgivable loans that spanned 2020 and 2021. In their defense, it says the country was shut down for much of 2020, which left faith organizations, some of whom rely on member donations to pay day-to-day -day costs facing financial disaster. It is a deep rabbit hole. This is a very long article. I'm not going to get into it, but we also know this. We know the power of email 
and we know the power of persuasion. And the fact is, is that it doesn't matter if they were ministers, preachers, you name it. These individuals, again, if they go to their computers and they read the email that comes from their higher-ups, if they're not independent, and many of them, of course, are not, they're all tied into their same organizations and same email chains and all that stuff. If they read the email, just like a medical doctor would, and it says, you need to do this, then they're going to do it. It's that simple. All these people had to do as a church or any, anyone else is just say no. That's all they had to do. But again, they're sheep. What do they know? You know, where in the Bible does it say, roll up your sleeve? Again, that's what the Biden administration goons would have you believe. They even said it. God gave you two arms so you could receive two shots at the exact same time. Remember when that nitwit said that? He no longer works there anymore. I'm sure he works for someone else now, but that was an actual thing. A person actually said that. The people leading these churches who encouraged the mask wearing and encouraged the shot taking and took the kickbacks and closed, you know, closed their doors and kicked people out of their congregations and what have you. These are not people who follow God. These are monsters. And we were warned about this. These are, these are the false prophets. Again, if they pull this card again, you're really going to find out who the false prophet is. You're really going to find out what these churches are capable of doing and how dumb they are. It's going to be incredible. Part of me, again, I've, I've said it on the show, I say bring it. Bring it. Do this one more time. Play this card again. I can't wait. <laughs> I really can't. I can't. Only the absolute foolish would fall for this one more time. And as I've said before, they're not going to make it. The people who fall for this again are not going to make it. Plenty of people who fell for it the first time haven't made it. That's why they're rolling this out again. Even Bill Gates himself said it, you know, we'll wait until the next pandemic, uh, that'll really get their attention. And then he had a big smile on his face. Again, th these people say this to our faces, that they want to kill us, and yet they're not being arrested by anybody. No one's doing anything to them. This information is out there. It's in the open. It, it blows me away. Blows me away. Okay, but there you go. Yeah, the church was involved. We are, we are fully aware. We, we know that that's a thing. All right. Let me get into the Ethan Crumbly thing here. Deep breath before I do, because this is interesting. And I'm going to bring up just a couple of specific points within this massive document, uh, again, that really pertain to their policy and how the policy wasn't followed because the policy can't be followed. It's too long. It's too vast. The word counselor in the 560-some-odd-page document shows up about 93 or 98 times. It's all throughout this document because, again, this was the nitwit who was talking with Ethan Crumbly and didn't do what he was supposed to do. And again, why is that? Well, because they employ what's called restorative practices. And let me just, again, briefly describe restorative practices, again, just to sort of refresh everyone's mind. Restorative practices is a, well, how do I start this? Restorative practices is a communist way 
to get everybody in the building on the same page to use the same words regarding any kind of conflict. So if two students, for example, aren't getting along, the district, instead of suspending them or having them even talk something out and then suspending them, even if they're violent toward one another, they will engage in restorative practices as a way to mediate the situation verbally, rather than just getting their asses out of the building, which is what they should do. Because in society, that's the way it works everywhere. If you fight somebody in your place of employment, you get fired, you get arrested, and you're not allowed to come back. So you have to keep this in mind, that particular thread right there. The school environment is arguably one of the most, if not the most, dangerous that exists in society because there are next to zero now repercussions for anyone who breaks the law. Again, if you engage in these kinds of behaviors anywhere else outside of the school or a, a school district, when you're 18 or older in society, you will be arrested, even if you're under 18, you'll be arrested and you won't be allowed back in to that establishment ever. Businesses do it all the time. Any, anybody can do it. You get in a fist fight in the library, in the local public library, you won't be allowed back. Not so with American schools, though. That's not the case. And that's exactly, again, what restorative practices is all about. It's about sitting a person down and getting them to openly admit that there was wrongdoing, that they're responsible to take responsibility for the thing that they did, verbally speaking, and then ask all of these benign questions of the individual who was doing the victimizing to then assess whether or not they are remorseful for what they've done. You can play this system like a fiddle if you want to. And, and students do. They know that if they engage in a fist fight, they will go through the restorative practices process. They'll play the entire thing like they're taking it seriously. They won't because there's nothing to take seriously. It's an embarrassing, it, it's an embarrassing program. And the word usage, of course, is embarrassing, and the sentences that they have these administrators read off is embarrassing, and the deans and the counselors and whoever it is that's, you know, basically playing along with this entire scheme. But restorative practices from a historic standpoint is rooted in the old social justice nonsense from back in the 70s. That's where this came about. And it actually originated, as I've said before and even written about, it originated in the justice system as a way to, again, reintroduce hardened criminals into society. It's part of the parole program that exists in the United States. And now this exists within, again, every American K-12 school district, public-private charter. Almost all of them use restorative practices. And yet, when someone is murdered, when the restorative practices plan is rolled out on a particular student, and that student kills people, that should prove to you that restorative practices doesn't work. It's, it's fraudulent. But again, in good K-12 school behavior and the way that they operate, they double down on the thing that doesn't work all of the time. That's also their MO. They never get rid of it, because getting rid of it would imply that all that professional development that they dished out to everybody, all that training, all that pseudo-learning 
of this so-called important policy that we're now going to implement is a is a complete waste of time and was a waste of time and now it doesn't work so we're getting rid of it it's it would be a it would just be a colossal admission of failure that they never ever ever want to participate in and that right there is exactly why Ethan Crumbly slipped through the cracks because the cracks are there on purpose that's why these school districts are as dangerous as they are and if you say to yourself that they can't get more dangerous than they already are, I assure you, they can get more dangerous. They can, and they will. Again, case in point, the last four years. Look what the last four years did to endless individuals in the entire business. Look what they got them to do. They got them to gag children. Lock them in a room with the lock on the outside of the door, along with a thousand other things. The brainwashing, the distancing, you can pick one. They actually got a brainwashed society to abuse children under the guise of health. And now we're talking about restorative practices for an individual who didn't even belong in the building. Because again, he was failing. There weren't any parent conferences taking place. No one was apparently recommending a parent conference because, again, with restorative practices, the building principals and the deans and the counselors and the teachers think that they can handle everything in what is called in-house. Let's keep this in-house. We are the parents. Let's not get the parents involved. We don't want the parents yelling at us because they're going to blame us. Let's just hone in on the student and we'll massage their ego a little bit and we'll pet them and tell them everything's going to be okay, Ethan, which is exactly what the counselor told him right before he sent him back to class, right before he started killing people. That right there is restorative practices in a nutshell. It does not work. And again, this is relevant and I bring it up in the substack. I had never even heard of restorative practices until I was doing my dissertation research at a high school in a neighboring town where I live, in an urban area that was 74% white. The student population was 74% white in an urban area. And they employed restorative practices as their school-wide and district-wide discipline intervention, quote-unquote. And it was the male assistant principal who first brought this up to me. And I, I got to tell you, when I was asking him about what, you know, what are the policies and procedures for conflict resolution and violence prevention, and that's what he said. He said, well, we have restorative practices. And he turns to his right, and he points at a poster on the wall. I remember this like it was yesterday. I mean, it, it blew me away. He points at a poster on the wall, and he goes, see that? And I went, yeah. And he goes, that's restorative practices. And it was like a list of like six things. And, and he goes through it, and he reads it out loud to me. And I thought to myself, again, my eyes were huge. I mean, they looked like saucers, because I thought to myself, this guy's dumber than a bag of shit. He actually thinks that this works. He goes along with this. They don't, they don't expel people. They don't out-of-school suspension them the way that they should. They, they don't do these things. 
They don't keep them. I mean, after school detention, remember when that was a thing? That was a thing when I was growing up. Hell, paddling was a thing. You could paddle kids. There are still schools in America that do that. But those, I mean, those things don't even exist anymore, let alone a parent conference. Certainly not at the high school level. But he, again, pointed at this poster and read through it, and he goes, oh, yeah, it, you know, it, it really works. It's really a neat kind of thing. And we all have to go through mandatory training as a district when you're a new employee, and you get a pamphlet and a book, and blah, blah. You know, it really is. And I'm saying to myself, you've got to be out of your mind. You've lost your mind. And then I watched their restorative practices in action. I watched it not work. They, they tried to do it with some of their more hardened criminals in that building. And it never worked. So once I heard about this restorative practices in this particular building, I added it immediately to the research and the inquiry and the questions that I started to ask the other employees. So when I started again asking the other, talking with the other administrators, and there were at least two that I talked with, and then I went out and I talked with 12 school teachers. Every single school teacher said that restorative practices was horseshit. Not, not a single one supported it. They all said the same things. They all said, restorative practices causes students to come back into the classroom after they've engaged in a serious offense. It could be sexual harassment. It could be physical violence, uh, drug abuse, showing up loaded, selling drugs. Pick one. They, they, they would always try to use restorative practices as this remediation kind of thing. And it never worked. And again, not only did the, did the staff members know it didn't work, but the student population knew that it didn't work. So I know it's a bit hearsay, but the, the, the teachers themselves were saying the students don't like restorative practices. Even the students, again, that never get in trouble, they know it's complete bullshit too. Because they know that the student who engaged in a serious infraction or broke the law, which let's face it, when you do engage in a serious infraction in school, it's usually a law being broken. They know that that student, the students knew that those students were, were going to come back to class with less than a slap on the wrist. And then, of course, as I brought up in my dissertation and research, I simply said, what kind of a message does that send to the entire environment? And again, all the staff members said the same kinds of things. They said it demoralizes everybody. It is district-sanctioned demoralization. That's a big deal. And again, that's exactly what happens not just in every American K-12 school, which is why the, the situation is the way that it is across the nation, but that's exactly what happened in the Oxford Community School District, which again, you know, the, the use of the word community in their school district is not an accident either. That's communistic Marxist lingo, and it gets used with regularity. So, okay, let me get into this very quickly. I think I'm going to get this out of order, but this was from the Detroit Free Press, and these were some screenshots that either Kristen or Bobby sent me in our text thread here. And this has to do with a woman by the name of Pam Fine. I'm getting her name correct. Pam Fine. 
is the school's anti-bullying coordinator and restorative practices expert who helps students resolve conflicts with a goal of reducing suspensions and keeping students in school. Now that's important in this description because that too is a major motive, as you would expect, of restorative practices. It's designed to keep discipline referrals non-existent, and certainly at a very low level. Because again, as I've said before, every school district is in the business of image protection. They always want to make it look like nothing bad happens in their school building or in any of their school buildings. That's always their, their MO. It's exactly what, what they try to, again, feed the public. We haven't had any discipline referrals this whole year. There's been no reports of bullying. It's a complete lie. Again, I, I just, you know, it's a head scratcher. I, 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 can't, I can't for the life of me beyond the proof of full-blown brainwashing and psychological abuse as to why parents continue to send their children to these environments when these environments are lying to your faces on a day-in and day-out basis. And they just blindly send them. Okay, sorry. Yikes. I just, it's so exhausting. Uh, this goes on here. It says, on the day of the shooting, Pam Fine was tasked with tracking the shooter's movements on the school's security cameras. She was in a hallway amidst the panic and commotion when over her walkie-talkie, the front office said it needed someone who could work the security cameras to help the 911 operator. It says that Fine said, quote, I'm on my way. When she got to the front office, Fine recalled the secretary's hand was shaking as she held her cell phone. She had a child in the building. He was safe. Then Fine got on the phone with the 911 operator. She said, I need you to find the suspect, Fine recalled. And then there's a section of this that says that Fine stated that the police ignored my pleas for help. It says, in rehashing the events of November 30th, Fine also expressed frustration with the police response. In her deposition, she described a scene when she was standing in front of the school flagging down police as they arrived. Shots had been fired, kids were down. And Fine was trying to get officers to door five, waving and yelling at them to follow her. Then it says, quote, I'm like, here, come with me here, and they stop, and they don't come to door five, Fine recalled. So I run back up to the police officer, the front car, and I'm yelling, we need help, we need help, we have kids down. Just then the assistant superintendent appeared. She told him, active shooter, kids down. And then it says, quote, I just remember his face just kind of went white, Fine recalled of the assistant superintendent who then joined her in yelling at the police officer. And then finally it says, quote, We were begging him to come with us, and he wouldn't come. Fine recalled, adding, She and the assistant superintendent then ventured into the building during the shooting because the police wouldn't come, unquote. Now, I have no reason to believe that she's lying, and I have no reason to believe she's telling the truth. I, I wasn't there. I don't know what happened. But, again, running up to police and telling them to follow you into a building where a shooting is taking place, so you say, it seems odd that a police officer would not want to run into the building. I mean, that's why they, 
That's why they do the job. That's why they take up the job. So I don't know. Certainly plenty of blame is, is going around and there's lots of finger pointing. There's no doubt about that. But now let me get into this document. This document, again, is 562 pages long. It is titled Oxford Community Schools Independent Report on the Shooting at Oxford High School on November 30th, 2021. It says, warning, the information discussed in this report is of a sensitive and traumatic nature involving gun violence, death, harm of children, and suicide, and may be potentially activating for victims and survivors. Somebody killed themselves? Who killed themselves? That's a question I have immediately. Um, again, I haven't read hardly any of this document before I bring this to your attention, but there are certain points of this that I want to read through so that you can hear it yourself. And then, of course, I have questions regarding some of the points that I bring up in this. And it really is an interesting document because, again, as I said earlier, this should prove to you that this happened whereas all the other previous shootings did not, because none of the other previous shootings have put together something like this. And this is what would happen in an actual shooting. Uh, with that said, what's interesting is there are also emails that I've seen regarding the back and forth between the sheriff's department in that town and the, or certainly the Oxford Police Department, the local police department, and in uh, the school district officials, specifically one of the assistant superintendents regarding grant money back in August that was supposed to be set aside or going to be set aside for resource officers, specifically within this building. So interesting timing that they're having conversations about acquiring grants to fund police officers being in that very high school just a couple of months or a few months rather before the actual shooting took place. So again, it seems rather odd, but either way, why would, why would you not have school resource officers in a high school? That's standard procedure. It's standard procedure. And if that means that you have to cut loose someone in your district office to pay the cop extra money to show up and be the school's resource officer, then that's what you do. You don't sit around and wait for grants. You cut somebody loose. You say, we might hire you back if we get this grant and this grant goes through. But in the meantime, we need to cut you loose, spare up that money for this cop so he can be an SRO, and then we'll hire you back once we get a cop in there and once the grant goes through. I mean, honest to God, these people, they, I'm shocked they can even tie their own shoes. Um, let me get into this now. And I want, to, I want to preface this one more time again by saying this. I hope that I'm not stepping on anybody's toes. I definitely don't want to step on Kristen or Bobby's toes from Truth for Oxford regarding this. I'm simply looking at this document as someone who used to work in the business as a whistleblower and fully understands the corrupt nature of these districts and what they do. I can, I can see this policy like I'm looking at ones and zeros. I mean, I can, I can see it crystal clear. So I'm just going to kind of break down a few pieces of this that immediately stuck out to me. And I mean, it was immediate. The first thing that I did on this PDF is, is in the upper right-hand corner in the search box, I typed in the term counselor because I wanted to see again how many times it pops up. It pops up again, I would say, at least 50 to 90 some odd times. Um, it, it's a great deal. And this, unfortunately, should show people how much they want counselors to actually do. 
and how frankly they're not they're not qualified. They, they just aren't. They are they're really downhill in shit creek when it comes to the number of policies that they have to follow and and their ability to memorize all of those policies. It's impossible. There's no way that frankly even a, a full-blown professional could possibly memorize all of these policies and these steps that they have laid out. Case in point, I'm going to jump right to the appendices. This is Appendix E, and it's titled Administrative Guideline 8400A, Threat Assessment and Intervention. This is out of their Administrative Guideline Manual, and this is, uh, this is ridiculous. This basically creates, and I'm just going to read from this chart, which is also Appendix F, which is the assessment of suicide risk. And here's what it states. It's a, it's a one-form, one-page document that is supposed to be filled out by the counselor, so it, so it seems where they categorize the student into either a low, medium, or high risk of killing themselves. So, <laughs> again, this is not, I, I don't mean to laugh like this is funny. This is embarrassing. There's no way that a school counselor is qualified to make such an assessment. And I don't know who created this assessment. I don't have a clue. But there's no way that they're qualified to make such a move like this. And again, let's ask whether or not parents are involved in any of this, because by the looks of it, they aren't. So here's what it says. At the top, of course, you, you fill in the child's name, their ID number, the date, and then the counselor's name. And then it says probability of attempt. So this has to do with, again, let's roll the dice and Fill out this form and see if they're likely to actually kill themselves. It says instructions use as a checklist an average for final assessment. Each item carries the same weight. Well, that's not logical either. All of these scenarios um, are, are problematic, and you can't categorize them as low, medium, or high. So here's what it says. It says suicide plan. A, B, C, D, and E. A is details. B is availability of means. C is the time. D is lethality of method. And E is chance of intervention. So you have to pick one of those, apparently. And then it says previous suicide attempts, stress, symptoms, coping behavior, depression, and then resources, type of communication, lifestyles, and then medical status. So here's the three categories then with low, medium, and high. I'm just going to read them from top to bottom, and this is, this is the, low, the low column. It says, are they being vague regarding their suicide plan? Not available, we'll have to get, we'll have to get, whatever. And then it says, no specific time or in the future, pills slash wrists, other present, others present most of the time. And apparently they're supposed to check these off. And then it says, none or one of low lethality, no significant stress. Another one is daily activities continue as usual with little change. 
Another one is mild or feels slightly down. Another one says help available, significant others concerned and willing to help. And then it says direct expression of feelings and suicidal intent. So basically, what is the student communicating with the person? Again, this is also where restorative practices comes into play because you're asking them sort of this, you know, mundane terminology. How are you feeling? Is everything okay? And then it says stable relationships, personality, and school performance. And then it says no significant medical problems. Now keep this in mind. They seem to believe that if the student has stable relationships according to them, or so they're told by said student, they have stable personality or stable school performance, then they are a low risk or a low probability of wanting to kill themselves. Again, I, I, don't know, I don't know how one correlates with the other necessarily. As, as I've brought up on this show numerous times, straight A students are likely to kill themselves also. In fact, they're more, they're, they're more apt to do so as opposed to somebody who's failing. I think it's indicative in this particular situation to remind people that, of course, Ethan Crumbly was failing. He was not a successful student. He didn't like the environment. He didn't like the people in the environment. And he was being thrust into this environment that he didn't like and being, of course, talked to and talked down to. I'm not making excuses for the kid. I'm simply saying that the environment makes these people. So from that angle alone, you, you can't let the school off of the hook. They make people like this. Whether it's in the immediate timeline that they are actually in the school building or even later in life. But all of those descriptors right there were what they deemed to be a low probability of killing oneself. Then it says this. This is the medium category. It says some specifics are available regarding, again, their suicide plan. They either have one available or have one close by. Uh, they're within a few hours, drug and alcohol or a car wreck that they've engaged in apparently, and others available if called upon. Th th this entire document is confusing. So if, if it's not making sense as I'm reading it, trust me, it's confusing to me too. This although proves that there's no way that they know what they're doing when they're filling it out. It then says several low or one medium lethality history of repeated threats, moderate reaction to loss, pressure or change. Okay. It says some daily activities disrupted, disturbance in eating, sleeping, schoolwork, moderate, some moodiness, sadness, irritability, loneliness, and decrease of energy. And then family and friends available but unwilling to consistently help interpersonalized suicidal goal, quote, they'll be sorry, I'll show them, unquote, and then recent acting out behavior and substance abuse, acute suicidal behavior and stable personality. The final one then says acute but short-term or psychosomatic illness. Ladies and gentlemen, that's Ethan Crumbly to, to the bone. That was him to the bone. All of those descriptors in the medium risk of probability of killing themselves, is, it's, it's right there. That describes him to a T. Here's the high risk. 
They know when, where, and how they're going to do it. They have the method ready, readily at hand, it says, has in hand immediately. Violent action, carbon monoxide. No one nearby isolated. <laughs> it's, rather, it's rather descriptive, carbon monoxide. Uh, it then says one high lethality or several moderate. It then says several reaction to loss, severe re reaction to loss, rather. Pressure or change. Gross disturbance in daily functioning, overwhelmed with hopelessness, sadness feels worthless, family and friends not available, or, or are hostile, exhausted, injurious. It says very indirect or nonverbal expression of internalized suicidal goal, guilt, or worthlessness. And then it says suicidal behavior in unstable personality, repeated difficulties with peers, family, teachers, etc., chronically debilitated or acute catastrophic illness. That also describes Ethan Crumbly. So at the very least, he's all three categories, low, medium, and high. For the most obvious, he's medium and high when it comes to a suicidal risk. This is why this wasn't followed. This is why, unfortunately, discretion comes into play with these quote-unquote counselors. Because again, based on what the teacher themselves said about Ethan Crumbly, he, he, fits, this, he fits this mold perfectly. But according to the counselor, he claimed that, well, he didn't see anything wrong. Yes, he's sad about the loss of his dead dog who just died, and he's failing all his classes and sleeping in class. But as I said earlier, where is the parent conference? Where's the actual parent conference taking place? Which leads me to this now. This is an interesting aspect of this too, and then I'm going to get into the communication between Ethan, the teacher, and the counselor, and how, how early they, they learned who each other was and, and what led up to this. There is something that is called the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act, or FERPA. I can't tell you how destructive FERPA is, and it truly is. This, this act alone, this law, so to speak, drives a wedge between school districts and parents by being basically misinterpreted and misused on the, on the part of the district in order to keep messaging away from the parent regarding what's going on with the child. Does that make sense? So, for example, let me give you a couple of extremes. You've heard me say before that in the school business, you could easily fix the problems of discipline in a building in the blink of an eye by getting on a microphone or the PA system in a school building and stopping everybody from, from whatever they're doing in school as they're all in class. And you say, okay, hi, everybody. This is Principal So-and-So. Do you remember Bobby and Sally? Well, Bobby and Sally got in a fist fight. Bobby and Sally were caught using drugs. And now Bobby and Sally are expelled. That's why Bobby and Sally have been expelled, and you'll never see them again. They're never coming back to this school district, and if you do the same things, you're going to be expelled also. Have a nice day and go back to your brainwashing. And then you hang up. FERPA exists to keep that from happening. It exists to keep school employees 
from talking about minors when it comes to laws that they've broken or policies that they've broken and talking about it publicly to everybody in what would be the most logical, teachable moment that you could imagine. Now, there's another thing, and this is again where it gets misinterpreted, and I'm going to read this uh, brief description here, but FERPA is also, again, flipped on its head by school districts to, again, keep parents out of the loop. This is why you have all of these school districts saying, well, your, your son or daughter wants to transition, and they've told us that. And that's why we're keeping it from you, because we feel that if we told you, their safety would be in danger. And we don't want you to know as parents, because they brought it up here in school, and we have to keep that a secret. See, that's why all of that's going on across the nation also. This is all stemming from FERPA, in my humble opinion. And again, it's, it's, teaching, it's teaching the people who work in these buildings, who are government employees, it's teaching them to believe that they have the best interests of these minors at heart all of the time, and that they are their protectors as opposed to their own family members. It's a way to make government the parent. And look how, I mean, look what that leads to. It leads to children cutting their genitals off and real school shooters. And this is a perfect example of it. So here's, here's a particular portion of this, and then I'm going um, I'm, I'm to skip ahead. It says the following, legal limitations on school communications regarding student matters. This is on page 177. It says, as the events described above, and this had to do with the deer head showing up in the school, a dead deer head, which Bobby brought up uh, in the last time that we were all on the Dangerous Info podcast. Screwed up story. And they highlight it in here. But it says, as the events described above demonstrate, parents and families understandably want to know if there is anyone or anything that poses a threat to their, chi to their children at school. Parents often hear information from students, other parents, or members of the community about events or conduct at school that the parents find concerning. In such situ situations, parents may feel that the school should be providing more information. However, a school's ability to share information with parents and the public is limited when that information concerns another student in the school. See what I mean? If you're a concerned parent, or even a concerned student in the building, and you want to know about something that's happened in that building that could make you more vigilant, or heaven forbid, cause you to unenroll from the school district permanently because they're filled with dipshits, regardless of the situation, they're openly telling you that because of FERPA, they can't tell you. It's not even that. They don't want to tell you because they don't want you to know how bad it is. Again, remember, image protection. That's their game. Sweeping it under the rug. What they show you is just window dressing, I'm telling you. What actually goes on is absolute muck, and they don't want people to know. It says the Family Education Rights and Privacy Act, FERPA, provides privacy protection to student education records and the personally identifiable information that is found in those records. 
A school district must obtain consent from a student's parent or guardian before disclosing a minor student's identifiable educational record unless an exception applies. If a school district has a policy or practice of disclosing student education records containing PII in violation of FERPA, the school district could potentially lose its federal funding. FERPA identifies the limited circumstances in which a school may disclose a student's education records without parental consent. For example, a school may disclose education records where they have been de-identified to remove student PII or to appropriate parties where disclosure is necessary to protect the health and safety of the particular student or other individuals. Who constitutes an appropriate party, quote-unquote, to receive student educational records in an emergency is determined by the district on a case-by-case basis. It says districts are further charged with making a case-by-case determination of what situations rise to the level of an articulable and significant threat or health and safety emergency, and it must also consider what educational records may be shared to address the emergency. Moreover, in the event a student disciplinary incident is reported to law enforcement, informing the public of the investigation or the identity of the student suspect may hinder law enforcement's ability to achieve the ends of their investigation and keep the school community safe. Horseshit. You see what I mean? This is the problem. We need to keep everything under wraps, because if we start telling people, well, that's not going to keep anybody safe, certainly not the community. They believe that they are the gatekeepers of information. Only they would believe, because they are government, Only government, like schools, would believe that not telling you something about an illegal act, or even that an illegal act occurred, that by not mentioning it to you or the public, or anybody in the building, is going to make things safer. That's how backwards they are. It says, in the wake of OHS shooting, the OHS shooting, which, by the way, in this entire document, they refer to Crumbly as the shooter. They don't even say his name. It says, Families at all levels of OCS have sought immediate communications from the district whenever an information, any information, about a perceived threat anywhere in the school system has circulated in the community. However, as explained above, OCS is limited by federal law in the information that it can disclose about students to parents and community members. Now, with that said, if memory serves, and again, it might be in this document, I don't know. And I'm running on memory here, so don't shoot the messenger. But I think I heard along the way that someone said that people knew that Ethan Crumbly was jacked up and people were worried about what he may or may not do to people long before the shooting took place. But see, FERPA would keep the school from telling anybody about him. Which, again, brings me right back to why was there not a parent conference with his parents the moment that this kid was falling asleep in class and failing class? That's standard procedure. That's just common sense. But again, procedure and common sense and following procedure and having common sense, rather, are in short supply, as we all know. So here we go. 
here's the meat of this particular section that I wanted to bring up. This, this is titled, The Interactions Between Hopkins and the Shooter. This starts at the bottom of page 178, if anybody's interested in following along. And I'll do what I can to uh, upload this document in the description below if you're interested in checking it out. It really is screwy. It says the following, quote, Sean Hopkins was the only person who was present for all three key meetings involving the shooter on November 29th and 30th. Hopkins participated in the meeting with the shooter and Pam Fine on November, although it says just Fine, but it's still the same woman, as I brought up earlier, on November 29th and took the lead in the two meetings on November 30th with the shooter and EJAC and then with the shooter and his parents and EJAC. Now, I don't know who EJAC is, so you're going to have to forgive me. In addition, Hopkins was the shooter's counselor and had met with him several times before November 29th and, and 30th of 2021, not only to handle routine school matters, such as class selection scheduling, but importantly, to check in with the shooter about concerns his 9th and 10th grade teachers had raised about the shooter. Many of these interactions are noted in other sections, but we consolidate every known interaction involving Hopkins and the shooter in this section to provide a clear picture of the information that Hopkins had going into the meeting with the shooter on November 29th. So this dates back again before then, which is critical. Keep in mind, and again, I'm, I'm reading this live here, but keep in mind that my, my immediate question is, when did Sean Hopkins call the parents to have a parent-teacher conference? When did the school teachers do the same? Or did they? Because if they didn't, again, that's the, that's the biggest problem in this. Like I said, that's standard procedure. I mean, if you've got a kid who looks like Ethan Crumbly, I mean, look at his face. If you have a kid who looks like that, who is falling asleep in class and failing, again, that's an immediate parent conference. Doesn't matter what time of year it is. So here's what it says. Quote, this is titled, Interactions Between Hopkins and the Shooter in Ninth Grade. In the 2021-22 school year, Hopkins was the counselor assigned to OHS students with the last names beginning with letters A through DI, including the shooter. He had a caseload of approximately 400 students at the time of the shooting. Now again, if you're saying why would a counselor have that many students, well, it's, main, it's, it's not because they're all brain dead. Uh, it's because of scheduling purposes, things of that nature. Sometimes, again, they just meet with a student once, and then that's it. What classes are you taking? You know, you have enough credits to graduate, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. It says Hopkins testified that he would typically see each of his assigned students other than seniors once per year for a scheduling meeting in which he helped them select their classes for the year. In addition to his scheduling responsibility, Hopkins' role as a counselor also included working with students on their transition to, to high school, first four years, post-secondary school plans for more senior students, and social and emotional well-being. Like many other aspects of school, the pandemic disrupted counselors' interactions with their assigned students. Ah, yes. That old yarn. The pandemic strikes again. The pandemic that never was, that doesn't exist. 
I digress. It continues. It says, uh, when, in, when interviewed, rather, by law enforcement on November 30th after the shooting, Hopkins acknowledged that, quote, to be honest, this is crappy with the past couple of years. I don't know my kids that well, unquote. You don't have to know them that well. Do you have a pair of eyes? Look at the kid's face. How about the complaints again that you were receiving from the teachers? It was pretty clear. It continues, it says, he explained that even though students had returned to in-person learning for the 2021 school year, the shooter's ninth grade year, quote, we were shut down for like seven weeks and we were trying to limit exposure, so it just wasn't, it wasn't like I was around the freshmen all that much, unquote. Hopkins testified in his deposition that he did not have any memory of meeting with the shooter during his first year at OHS, recalling rather that, quote, we did scheduling virtually that year and we limited our meetings with students. Similarly, at the parents' preliminary examination hearing in their criminal case, Hopkins testified that the shooter was assigned to him in the fall of 2020 and did not specifically recall meeting with the shooter for a scheduling meeting because it was done virtually. It says, at his deposition, Hopkins testified that the first time that I received a notice to my memory of the shooter would have been in early September of 2021 in an email received from his Spanish teacher. However, email correspondence obtained from OHS shows that two of the shooter's teachers contacted Hopkins several months earlier in the second semester of ninth grade to alert him to concerns they had about the shooter's classroom performance. The evidence indicates that Hopkins met with the shooter in mid-May 2021 to discuss at least one of the teacher's concerns as set forth below. So he's misleading, misremembering, or he's lying. It says on May 13th of 2021, and you have to keep in mind, Sean Hopkins is still an employee. (laughs) Blows me away. Works in the district office or in another school, I believe. Another school, if memory serves. It says on May 13th of 2021, in the spring of the shooter's first year at OHS, two of the shooter's teachers contacted Hopkins, the second shooter's counselor, I'm sorry, the shooter's counselor, rather, about their concerns about the shooter's classroom performance. First, the shooter's ninth grade ELA teacher, Renee Derecki, I'm saying that right, emailed Hopkins at 1.46 p.m. and asked him to meet with the shooter. And here's the email. May 13th, 2021 at 1.46 p.m. They said, hi, when you get a chance, can you call Ethan Crumbly, says the shooter. I don't know why they block out his name. Uh, Down and see how he's doing. He's failing my class and tries to sleep all the time in class. Thanks. Renee Derecki, uh, English language arts teacher, Oakland University liaison, uh, Oxford High School. First of all, okay, I tell you what, this is, I'm having flashbacks. The PTSD is kicking in now. This right here is not an email that a school teacher sends a counselor. It just isn't. You don't do this. If you're a school teacher and you have a student in your class who's sleeping and failing, you talk with the student and then you con- and then you contact the counselor and then you contact the parents 
the, the school teacher does all of that. You do all of those things as the school teacher. You don't pass the buck onto a counselor and say, hey, can you handle this? Just take care of this. That's not what you're supposed to do. I don't care what building it is, and I don't care what district it is. That's not what you do. You handle it. Again, a sleeping kid who's failing is an immediate parent conference. It says Hopkins replied to Derecki's email about 20 minutes later at 2.07, where they said the following, and they have a picture of the actual email. Uh, fr- this is from Sean Hopkins. It says, I had blank blank in my office when you emailed me. It's one of those days. Then they said, thanks, just a little worried, said the school teacher back to Hopkins. And Hopkins replied back and said, I'll catch him before the end of the day. So you can see that there's no priority here, and there's certainly nobody saying, let's get a parent conference going. It says, as stated in the email, directly told, uh, told Hopkins that she was just a little worried about the shooter. At her deposition, Derecki was not specifically asked about her email to Hopkins on May 13th, but she testified that she referred the shooter to Hopkins because he was failing her class and sleeping in class on a regular basis. Derecki testified that she did not speak to Hopkins about the shooter after this referral email because, quote, the situation had rectified itself and the shooter ultimately passed her class. Nonsense. That's nonsense. There was still no parent conference. The parents still didn't know that he was sleeping and failing, but passed the class with what? A D minus? It says neither Hopkins nor Derecki were asked about these emails at their depositions, nor did Hopkins testify at the shooter's preliminary hearing about receiving this request from Derecki. At her deposition, Derecki asked, was asked rather about texts that she sent to other teachers after the shooting in which Derecki said that she referred the shooter to Hopkins because he was, quote, always trying to sleep, smelled, failing class, unquote. Hopkins did not have any memory of any teacher telling him that the shooter was sleeping in class or on his phone in class or had poor personal hygiene. See, now you have finger pointing and a lack of communication. See how this all sets itself up for something terrible to happen? It's amazing. It says Hopkins did not, again, have any memory, blah, blah, blah. Okay. And then it says, uh, very next line, we could not ask Hopkins whether he met with the shooter as he told Derecki he would because he refused to speak to us as did Derecki. Interesting. Says, however, other evidence indicates that Hopkins met with the shooter on May 13th. An email from another teacher indicates that Hopkins called the shooter down to his office on May 13th of 2021 for a meeting, as Hopkins told Derecki he would do at 2020. I'm sorry, at 2:21 uh, p.m. that same day, the shooter's biology teacher wrote to Hopkins about the shooter's refusal to retake a test with the rest of the class a test on which the entire class had done poorly. Sounds like you got a teaching problem, maybe. It says the email indicates that Hopkins called the biology teacher and asked her to send the shooter down to his office just minutes after the biology teacher had confronted the shooter about retaking the test. And the email goes like this. This is from Christy Bonkowski. 
to Sean Hopkins on May 13th of that same day. Subject, your timing is crazy, is the subject line. It says the following, quote, I just have to tell you, the shooter just refused, well, Ethan Crumley, Ethan just refused to retake a test he got a 47% on. We spent an hour preparing for it. He told me he would rather fail biology and retake it again next year. I told him that we were going to have to set up a meeting with his counselor and parents because I think he is better than that. Not even three minutes you called asking for him. Then below that email, it says, As indicated in the email, Hopkins called the biology teacher not even three minutes after she told the shooter that she would be contacting Hopkins and the shooter's parents about his refusal to retake this test. It appears that Hopkins called the shooter out of biology class on May 13th in response to Derecki's email above, and it was a coincidence that the biology teacher had an issue with the shooter that same day. Coincidence. Yeah. In an interview with law enforcement after the shooting, the biology teacher explained that Hopkins had called her to send the shooter to his office, which was not uncommon. She did not want to embarrass the shooter by describing to Hopkins over the phone his refusal to retake the test, so she sent Hopkins the above email after she sent the shooter to his office. We did not see any response from Hopkins to the biology teacher's email, but it is possible that he addressed the shooter's refusal to retake the biology test in the meeting that he and the shooter apparently had that day. If he read the biology teacher's email before meeting the shooter. Now I'm confused. Now I'm confused. It, it, it almost doesn't matter. It boils down to, did the counselor set up a parent conference? Because this is at least the second or third time now that his academic performance and or state of being has come into question. And as of right now, this is the only teacher to suggest a parent conference. But it's not coming from the counselor. It says, when interviewed by law enforcement after the shooting, Hopkins did not appear to recall meeting with the shooter in May of 2021. An investigator asked Hopkins, quote, would you say during freshman year did you... Did you have really any interaction with him, unquote? And Hopkins replied, not really. Keep in mind, this Hopkins guy is still an employee. He apparently has no memory. He suffers from amnesia, and he's a complete idiot. Uh, He's remarkably flamboyant, too, if memory serves. Could be gay. Wondering if, uh, if that plays a little role here, you know, in helping these students along and wanting to be their friends. Just saying. Just throwing it out there. It says, as noted above in his deposition, Hopkins recalled that the first time the shooter registered in Hopkins' memory was in September of 2021, in connection with an email that is described below. Then it says this, and then eventually I'm going to have to stop reading all of this because, again, it's 500 some odd pages. It's 562 pages long. But I, f- I just found this particular section interesting again because um, it has to do with. Clear, clear common sense and basic policy not being followed in zero communication. There, there's no objective or accurate communication, and there's not making the parents aware of anything. Uh, and, and I've said this before and even written about it at length in probably all of my books. That right there is always the number one concern of parents, 
is they always end up saying in parent conferences the following line, quote, why didn't I hear about this sooner? Unquote. That's what they always say. That's a direct implication that the school is not communicating with the parents. Or they'll even say this. I heard this a lot. I'm patting myself on the back. They would say, the only person who's told us about this is Mr. Brooks. <laughs> I loved when that would happen. That would be great. I'd make a whole lot of friends, you know, when, when, when that would take place. I'm being sarcastic, of course, but you get what I'm saying. I would be the one to tell parents what was going on. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Anyway, sorry. A little side story there. Uh, here, here's what it says now. It says, this is section B on page 183. It's titled, Interactions Between Hopkins and the Shooter in 10th Grade Prior to November 29th. It says, when interviewed by law enforcement on November 30th after the shooting, Hopkins said that the shooter was, quote, pretty typical from a transition from freshman to sophomore academic, unquote. Hopkins did not think that there had been a big change in the shooter's academic performance from 9th grade to 10th grade, telling law enforcement, quote, I don't know that I'd say it's that different, unquote, and observing that the 2021 school year, the shooter's ninth grade year, had been ridiculous, quote-unquote, seemingly referring to the difficulties caused by COVID. Ah, <sighs> every time. In this interview with law enforcement on November 30th, Hopkins recalled that the shooter was struggling a bit this year, 10th grade, with his grades, noting that the shooter was failing one class at the time, but he observed that it wasn't like, you know, he was a straight-A student, unquote and he thought the shooter was, quote, not that far different from most of our kids, unquote. Those statements by Hopkins about the shooter did not accurately represent the shooter's overall academic performance in 10th grade. Our review of the shooter's grades as a sophomore discussed above established he was struggling more than just a bit, and that he had stopped doing the assigned work in several classes in November of 2021. Do you see where this is going? There's still not a parent conference. It says on November 8th of 2021, about 12 weeks before the shooting, McConnell, the shooter's Spanish teacher, asked her student to write a get-to-know-you autobiographical poem. Boring. Which, by the way, I've warned, I've warned people who want to be school teachers about such an assignment that when they do such a thing, this right here is a huge red flag because this is where suicidal and, and students who want to take another's life will sometimes write out what they're actually thinking. And if the school teacher doesn't take it seriously and report it, then the teacher's on the hook and can lose their job. I've warned this directly to the faces of, of current graduates and even teacher education students. This is a horrible. Uh, this is a horrible assignment. But anyway, it continues. It says, in completing the assignment, the shooter wrote that he felt terrible and that his family was a mistake. At her deposition, McConnell testified that as the students were working on this assignment in class, McConnell was not sure that the shooter was joking. And based on her experience with a former student who had committed suicide, she was hyper-alert of students who make a mention of something 
and I tend to maybe take it more seriously or investigate a little more than somebody else who would just say, okay, it was a joke, unquote. Now, they have this particular quotation uh, indented here, and it says the following. The kids were all giggling. This must have been directly from her deposition. The kids were all giggling and laughing, and the shooter, Crumbly, had written that he felt terrible, which I've had other students do that, but usually it's allergies, a cold, something that his family was a mistake. And so when I went to talk to him to find out what, you know, what was going on over there, they were laughing and joking about that. And I looked at the shooter and I said the shooter's name, and he just said, it's a joke, it's a joke. Yeah, this is a huge red flag. According to the police, notes of an interview with McConnell after the shooting, she stated that based on her three decades as a teacher, she thought that the shooter would not have made the statements that concerned her unless he meant them. McConnell did not want to ask the shooter about his statements at the moment in class because there were 32 other students present, so she decided not to pursue the matter further on her own and instead reached out to Hopkins to talk to the shooter privately. And then she said in this email, Hi, Sean, could you please touch base with Ethan Crumbly? In his autobiography poem, he said that he feels terrible and that his family is a mistake. Usual responses for sure. Thanks, Diana McConnell, Spanish teacher, Oxford High School. And that took place on November, I'm sorry, uh, September 8th of 2021 at 8.23 in the morning. Hopkins responded to McConnell's email and said, Thanks for the heads up. I'm in senior meeting throughout the day, but we'll try and catch up with him. McConnell and Hopkins have markedly different memories of what happened next. At her deposition, McConnell testified that she later spoke to Hopkins about the matter and that, quote, he told me that he had talked to the shooter, everything seemed fine, and that he had said that, told the shooter that he had an open door. Come back if you need me, unquote. When McConnell spoke to law enforcement after the shooting, she had a slightly different recollection according to the police notes. McConnell reportedly told the police that Hopkins told her that he had spoken to the shooter, but he did not provide any additional details. McConnell testified that after she spoke to Hopkins, she accepted that the shooter had been joking when he made the statement in his autobiographical poem that had initially troubled her. In other words, speaking to Hopkins after he had spoken to the shooter, as she said Hopkins told her, led McConnell to accept the shooter's statements were a joke. These people are stupid. There's just no way around it. I mean, I hate to, you know, be that, uh, I don't know, that, that simple about it, but these people are just stupid. It says, however, according to Hopkins, he never spoke to the shooter to discuss McConnell's concerns about the shooter's statements. Oh, okay. And he never told McConnell that he met with the shooter at the time. At his deposition, Hopkins testified about what he did after receiving McConnell's email on September 8th of 2021, where they said, quote, I actually spoke with Diana McConnell to gain a little more context, to which I found out that he, when I gained context of this, was in a group. They wrote it as a joke. He was with friends. 
So I lowered any potential concerns I may have that a student was following instruction of writing an autobiography poem. He wrote on topic, he said. He wrote about family. And when I found that he was actually doing it as a joke, I did not follow up with the shooter in regards to that assignment. See, everybody's just believing students. This is also a huge problem. That that uh, they 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 let students just talk their way out of things with the simplest of explanations. It's ridiculous. It says in Hopkins telling, it was McConnell who reassured him, reassured him, it's italicized, that the shooter had been joking when he wrote that he felt terrible and that his family was a mistake, the opposite of what McConnell recalled. Hopkins elaborated and said, quote, McConnell was initially thinking that it might be something a little more than it was until she gained context of what the situation was. McConnell is also a little bit self-described as a, as a worrier. She said she was quick to, to send the email to Hopkins off, and then after gaining context of what was going on, had her anxieties calmed, and went and when I met with her, rather, it says by that point, was stating that it was not as big of a deal as she had initially thought. Again, Hopkins' testimony contradicts McConnell's testimony, for she recalled that after she spoke to the shooter and she said it was a joke, she was still uncertain. According to McConnell, the context she gained from the shooter did not calm her anxieties, contrary to Hopkins' recollection. Okay, here's what I'm going to do. I have to finish this. Okay, I have to finish reading this particular section. It's almost done because this right here, right at the end of this, you're not going to believe this. I mean, you will believe it because it's already setting itself up for this, but it really comes to a head here. And again, there's, there's very little left, so just bear with me. I'm telling you, this is jacked up. Okay, I'm on page 186 at the bottom here. Um, let me see. It says the following. It says, we, I'm still in order here. I'm not bouncing around or anything. It says, we cannot reconcile the differences in the deposition testimony of McConnell and Hopkins because they both refuse to speak with us. We are not aware of any evidence that would corroborate either account. We can state definitively that McConnell contacted Hopkins in September of 2021 because she was concerned about the shooter's statements in his autobiographical poem, but we cannot say for certain whether Hopkins met with the shooter or not. It then says, later that fall, Hopkins did meet with the shooter in response to another email from McConnell, specifically on November 10th of 2021. McConnell emailed Hopkins to tell him that the shooter was going through a difficult time. At her deposition, McConnell testified that in November of 2021, she had noticed that the shooter had been quieter in her Spanish class and was putting less effort into his work. McConnell had also noticed that the shooter's good friend had not been at school, and she was unaware of why he was no longer in class. McConnell testified that she asked the shooter how he was doing, and he told her that he was okay. When she was interviewed by, when she was interviewed by law enforcement, it says, after the shooting, McConnell also recalled that the, that the shooter seemed distracted and was not paying attention in class, but writing in his journal instead. McConnell's various observations of the shooter prompted her to send Hopkins the following email, and this was on November 10th 
at 2.45 in the afternoon where they said, Hi, Sean. Ethan Crumbly is having a rough time right now. He might need to speak with you, unquote. It says in this email, McConnell did not alert Hopkins to the underlying reason that had prompted her to write. She did not cite her concerns about the shooter's academic performance in her class, the absence of the shooter's friend, or his more subdued demeanor. Two hours later, after the school day had ended, Hopkins responded in an email at 4.44 p.m. saying, quote, I'm sorry, I was in a meeting through the end of the day. I'll catch up with him, sent from his iPhone. It says Hopkins did not contact McConnell to learn more about the circumstances that led her to write that the shooter was having a rough time right now, quote unquote. Hopkins testified that on the morning of the next day, November 11th of 2021, he waited outside one of the shooter's classrooms to catch him as he entered his class. Hopkins recalled that his public meeting, that this public meeting with the shooter in the hallway was brief, characterizing it as a check-in, quote-unquote. The conversation between Hopkins and the shooter was short, as Hopkins explained at his deposition. Quote, I said that I had heard you might be going through something or you might be having a rough time. I just wanted you to know that if you need to talk, I can be there for you, unquote. According to Hopkins, the shooter simply said, okay. Uh, It says, which Hopkins found to be not an uncommon or concerning response because it's not about, let's figure this out. It's not about even a problem to figure out. A rough time isn't something that I would look at and think, oh no, we have to fix this, unquote. Hopkins guy's a dope. He's a dope. It says, at his deposition, Hopkins explained why he responded differently to McConnell's email in November of 2021 than he had to her earlier email in September of 2021. He said the following, quote, the November 10th, 2021 email is more specific about a feeling of a student versus an assignment that the teacher felt the need to give a little bit more information about. I believe that a teacher writing about an assignment is a different level of context needed versus a student who may be having a rough time right now, which is counseling wheelhouse, where I am dealing in feelings, emotion, and not a response to what a teacher saw written on their assignment, which while raised the need for an email was also in context to the assignment being about his family, unquote. Again, passing the buck. Pointing fingers, amazing. It says, we note that November 11th, 2021, the day on which Hopkins spoke to the shooter outside his classroom about the rough time, quote unquote, was the same day that the shooter anonymously left a bird head in the boys' bathroom between third and fourth hours, as described above. Hopkins testified that he had no additional interaction with the shooter until November 29th of 2021, the day before the shooting. He left a flipping bird head in the boys' bathroom. He's sleeping in class. He's failing. He's writing suspicious things. He's opening the book as to what might be going on again in his own mind regarding the state of his own family. He's lost his dog, his friend's not there anymore, and then he leaves a goddamn bird head in the bathroom. You've got to be kidding. Who doesn't think that that's a problem? 
And at no point is anybody saying, you know, let's get the parents on the phone. Let's have a little chit chat with the parents. Unbelievable. <laughs> Birdhead. Unbelievable. I think that I think I think Bobby brought that up in the in the uh in the episode on when they were on the Dangerous Info podcast. I think that's where I first heard that. Amazing. It says it is unclear whether Hopkins told McConnell that he had met with the shooter on November 11th, 2021 or about the conversation they had. McConnell testified at her deposition that Hopkins called her after he met with the shooter on November 11th and told her that the shooter was upset because his grandmother and dog had recently died. Now grandma's dead too. However, the law enforcement notes of an interview with McConnell after the shooting after the shooting state that she did not follow up with Hopkins because the shooter returned to acting like himself in her class. Hopkins was not asked at his deposition whether he spoke to McConnell after meeting with the shooter on November 11th of 2021. My guess is no. My guess is he he didn't. It says the foregoing discussion documents all interactions between Hopkins and the shooter, of which we are aware based on our review of the records produced to us by OCS, deposition and court testimony, and our interviews with witnesses. As stated at the outset of this deposition, Hopkins himself did not recall all of the communications he received about the shooter or his interactions with the shooter. In his deposition and preliminary examination testimony, Hopkins did not recall that two of the shooter's teachers had contacted him in May of 2021 about the shooter, nor did he recall that he apparently met with the shooter in response to one of those emails. This highlights the need for OHS personnel to document meetings with students that are prompted by a teacher's concern about a student's behavior. We understand that Hopkins had approximately 400 students in his caseload in the 2021-22 school year uh, and, that he previ- and that the previous years, COVID shutdowns and restrictions had hampered his ability to get to know his assigned students. I think you can get to know Ethan Crumbly pretty well when he's sleeping, failing, sad all the time, telling people as much, and he leaves a flippin' bird head in the bathroom. Hello, McFly. It can't get clearer. Those COVID shutdowns and restrictions had also caused numerous students to struggle academically, likely resulting in more meetings between students and counselors. Clearly not. Clearly not. It says, under the circumstances, it's not surprising that Hopkins did not recall receiving emails about the shooter's classroom performance in May of 2021. OHS staff used PowerSchool to document behavioral incidents. OHS should also document meetings with students that are prompted by a teacher's concern about the student's behavior, even when the behavior does not rise to the level of an incident, quote-unquote. The emails that Derecki and McConnell sent to Hopkins did not relate to behavioral incidents. Of course they do. Of course they do. Your observations of him failing, sleeping, and being sad is a behavioral incident. If it isn't, what do you call a behavioral incident? Leaving a bird head in the bathroom? but instead contained those teachers' observations about the shooter's classroom behavior and demeanor. Oh, I thought demeanor and behavior were the same thing. 
and it says classroom behavior. Is that not a behavioral thing? Which concerned them enough to contact the shooter's counselor and ask them to meet the shooter. If a teacher contacts a counselor to ask the counselor to meet with the student, that email and any meetings with the student should be documented in PowerSchool or some other accessible information repository, even if the underlying behavior did not rise to the level of an incident, quote-unquote. At a minimum, keeping a record of such meetings would help counselors with huge caseloads to better remember their interactions with students. More importantly, documenting these interactions in PowerSchool, or in another sim- system rather, that is readily accessible to a threat assessment or suicide assessment team would ensure that this data is not soiled, but available in a future threat or suicide assessment. And then it wraps up here. And it says, as established in the foregoing discussion prior to November 29th of 2021, Hopkins had been contacted by two of the shooter's ninth grade teachers on one of his 10th grade te- and one of his 10th grade teachers on four separate occasions, twice in May of 21, once in September of 21, and once in November of 21. Hopkins apparently met with the shooter on May 13th of 21 and definitely met with him on November 11th of 21. Heading into, into November 29th rather, of 2021, Hopkins was the OHS staff person who possessed the most information about the shooter, and he learned more information about the shooter on November 29th and 30th of 2021, as set forth below. Including, as it says here, and then I'm going I'm to stop reading here, the acquisition of a gun, his social media posts, etc., etc., etc. I'm going to stop it there. Sorry to sorry to sort of be abrupt with the with the halting of this here, but um, you can see what's happening here. It's individuals again not doing what they're supposed to be doing for the most part, not scheduling any parent conference whatsoever. There's still there's still no mention of that. We've only heard it once in an email suggested by one of his teachers. And at no point does this counselor organize a parent a parent teacher conference with all of the teachers in the room, with the parents and the counselor. It it just doesn't happen. Or at the very least, just meeting with the parents themselves without the student present. Because that happens too, and that's fine in many situations also. But the communication breakdown here is beyond evident, and uh, and it's embarrassing. And this right here, again, should prove that this Sean Hopkins guy has no business working in this school building. He should be immediately fired. He should have his counseling certification revoked immediately at the state level. And the end. Among other people, I'm sure possibly Pam Fine and any other nitwit who uh who didn't do what they were supposed to do again uh, again a basic question to these school teachers would be did you schedule a parent conference and if not why not but it doesn't seem like that's been asked again i haven't read the entire document but there you go that's my two cents on the whole issue okay i might dive back into this a little bit for friday we will see but either way, whatever you do, make sure and tune in next Monday to Jesse James's uh, podcast. Again, it live streams on video on Rumble. 
on the Dangerous Info Podcast Rumble channel, where again, Truth for Oxford will be there describing, I'm sure, a great deal more. Even again, outside nefarious stuff that, that is going on in that in that area regarding the school district and its deep state uh, control and influence that apparently uh, exists over that school district. So there you go. With that said, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. I'll catch you on Friday. Peace. Thank you for listening to American Education FM. Make sure and check out AmericanEducationFM.com for more information. Take care and God bless.